Hello, friends. It is still Spooktober, and this time it's really Spooktober instead of Spooktember. And don't worry, we will have more new spooky content coming to you soon. But for now, Amber is in Saudi Arabia for work, and I have been dealing with a few health issues, nothing too serious, but it has been keeping us from recording. So in the meantime, here is a lightly abridged former Deep Cuts, one of our bonus episode tiers, which we're going to be starting up again soon. And uh, it's about witches. So get ready to get witchy. Here we go. little tumbleweed go by in the shape of a dog oh she's coming back with it (laughs) (laughs) just taking her taking her chew toy on a tour she keeps checking to see if the door's open so she can go bury it under the tree don't you wish she had thumbs anyway hello and welcome to deep cuts the more or less monthly episode where we talk about a topic related to something we've covered in the past few weeks as you probably are well aware by now listeners It is Spooktober, which means that Amber has been telling me very scary stories. Well, now it's my turn to flip the script, and I will be treating Amber to some spooky story time of my own. And she, up until this very moment, when I I let her open the script, has no idea what I have put together. I'm so ready. I want to hear a story. Which story? What? Which story? Uh, oh, witches! Okay. <laughs> witches! Witches! I am going to tell you some spooky witchy archaeology stuff, namely three instances of archaeological sites, assemblages, and or artifacts associated with ritual and magic. Each of these stories have some eerie stuff going on. Plus, we can talk a bit about witchcraft and feminism and stuff that I think you'll like since I did craft this for you. Ah, and... What timing, because the originator of how I keep saying witches <laughs> comes from Larry Nichols, who is like a conspiracy guy that like hates the Clintons. Oh, cool. He's, he, and, sounds fun. He, he, he was like he was involved like in the um, the Clinton body count stuff from like the 90s. Like he's from Arkansas and has like a longstanding beef All with right. him. But he's the one that <laughs> says Does he like, talk quite, about witches? Specifically that um, Hillary Clinton goes to Witch Church. Witch <laughs> Church? Yeah. Witch Church is the one like, over there. She's so like, and he's like, uh-huh, witches. <laughs> so, <laughs> witches has so three that, syllables. Uh, so that guy died. Okay. Oh, like recently? Today? Yeah, like last uh, week. Well... Rest, so rest in peace is that guy. Uh, yeah, so. All right. Another well, one for the Clinton body count. <laughs> Barf. All right. So a note before we begin. This is a very Eurocentric episode. Sorry. Apart from the final story, which ventures outside of that a little bit. Magic and ritual are conceptualized differently in every culture. So for Spooktober, I wanted to talk about the very stereotypical to me idea of the capital W, Witch. Witch. 
the pointy black hat. And then I found a couple of other related things from elsewhere in time and place. So there's plenty of opportunity for Amber and myself to talk about other aspects of magic and ritual elsewhere in the world. Ritual. On the <laughs> Reach. Oh, man. Is, is this, this going to be the thing? No. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, something that's for the main feed. And I didn't want to put all of our poison apples in one basket. 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 So first, let's talk about a news story that I found in the archives of archaeology.org that sounds like an ideal situation for an archaeologist. Tons of cool material, a witchy story to tell, and found in one's own front yard. The author of this piece is Kate Revilius, which is... Oh. Yeah, I know, right? What a good witch name. Um, she's a little dramatic with her prose, but let's call that an atmospheric addition to the archaeology. So here we go. Um, and I have links on this that are going to go up on the notes for this episode. Over the centuries, many in the British Isles have, appeal have appealed to witches in times of need to cure a toothache, concoct a love potion, or curse a neighbor. Witchcraft, the rituals of a number of pagan belief systems, was thought to offer control of the world through rites and incantations. Common as it has been over the past several centuries, the practice is secretive, and there are few written records. Kind of like um, a, a European version of the um, Chilean, the off the coast of Chile, the mm. in Chile way, the yeah, Mapuche. the Chile, yeah, the Mapuche oh. stuff, um, mm. yeah, brujos. There we go. So it tends to be the the practice of these rituals, whatever they might be in the local folk tradition, tend to be passed down through families and never revealed to outsiders. But archaeologist Jackie Wood has unearthed evidence of more than 40 witchy rituals, 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 beneath her own front yard, bringing to light an unknown branch of witchcraft, possibly still practiced today. So what? Wood's home is in the hamlet of Saviak Water in Cornwall, a county tucked in the far southwest corner of the country. For thousands of years, people have raised crops and livestock in its fertile valleys, and its coastline of dramatic cliffs, secluded coves, and pounding surf was once a haunt for smugglers. Cornwall is a place time forgot, steeped in folklore, myth, and legend, specifically a lot of Arthurian legend going on up in that part of the world. And purported to be inhabited by pixies, fairies, and elves. So it should come as no surprise that it has also been home to the dark arts. So I just want to interject here because that is the author's word of dark arts. And that has a connotation of evil a lot of the time. But dark, I think, refers more to the secrecy of these practices and beliefs. And the connotation mostly comes from the imposition of Christianity on this region because it was all pagan. And that was viewed as something to be squashed out of the locals. So, anyway, in the late 1990s, Jackie Wood decided to do some metalwork research by recreating an ancient kind of furnace. And she says, I dug down into the ground to construct a shelter close to the furnace, and I discovered a clay floor. I already like this person and her experimental yard. I like it. Any archaeologist <laughs> who does experiments in their yard is someone I want to hang out with. Wood was excited about the clay floor, but was busy with other projects and left the find undisturbed for a few years. In 2001, she gathered some archaeology students to explore it further. And she said, uh, this is spooktober for archaeologists. It was a nightmare to dig through because the field is covered in a soft rush grass with a dense web of roots and the soil is heavy and laden with water. That's something that like I never nightmare. got. Like, like folks that I... 
like I, I worked with several people who were from the UK and who did work in the UK, like as students or mm-hmm. like gig work. And like, I don't understand how anybody could stand. Says the like, person who excavated in sand. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which, like, I, I had um, a friend who was like, what do you do? Just, like, blow on it? <laughs> so, <laughs> you get one of those little um, snot suckers for babies and go, like, <laughs> we did. I mean, actually, we used that at La Pharisee. Yeah, but it's They called it the fluffer. A big one. Our, our like PI, Dennis, called it the fluffer, and we had to be like, um, Dennis. <laughs> He's Canadian. I don't think they use that word. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he was pretending not to know. Anyway, as the group peeled off layers of turf, they discovered the clay floor was an extensive man-made platform, probably a foundation for a group of ancient dwellings. What used to be a half-acre marshy field is now a slippery clay surface covered with small plastic crates protecting finds. Based on flint fragments embedded in the clay, a Danish specialist, who's really into bear claws, dated the site to the late Mesolithic around 8,500 years ago. (laughs) Oh, that tickled me. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't want to be a Danish specialist? It's a very difficult combination of words for my little mouth to say, though. But as Wood and her team excavated the platform over the next few seasons, unusual features began to emerge. They came across strange rectangular holes about 15 by 10 inches in the clay. And Wood said, at first we thought they must be post holes or something. But the first of the holes, about six inches deep, was lined with white feathers. The pits cut through the clay platform, so Wood knew that they had to date to a later time, but only an expensive radiocarbon test could pin it down. So they guessed that it might have been a bird plucking pit, which is a common farming practice at the turn of the 19th century. But that couldn't be the case. Wood found that the feathers were still attached to the skin, which had been laid in the pit with the feathers facing inward. A bird expert from the local zoo confirmed that the feathers came from a swan. On top of the swan skin, Wood found... Your face is great right now. Wood found a pile of pebbles and a number of claws from different birds. She later learned that the stones came from a coastal region 15 miles away, though no one knows why they were brought from so far. Someone had gone to considerable trouble to gather the contents of this pit. That season, Wood and her colleagues found eight pits, two of which contained odd collections of bird parts and six of which had been emptied, but with a few telltale feathers and stones left behind. So Wood said, over the last 30 years, I've been quick to dismiss ritual as an explanation for unusual archaeological finds. It usually means that the archaeologists can't think of anything better. So now it seems especially ironic that I end up with a site absolutely full of ritual. And again, just to, this is her front yard. She lives on top of it. More unusual finds came in 2005. Sandwiched between two of the rectangular pits was a round pit with a swan feather lining. On top of the swan feathers nestled 55 eggs, seven of which contained chicks that would have been close to hatching. The shells of the eggs had dissolved, but the moist environment had preserved their membranes. Remains of magpies, birds associated with luck and superstition even today, had been placed on each side of the eggs. By that time, Wood was convinced that only witchcraft could explain her unusual finds, but no one had ever heard of anything like this. Radiocarbon tests revealed the swan skins dated to around 1640 AD, the time of civil war in England, the um, overthrow of Charles I and the Reformation and uh, not the Reformation, the what's that called? 
Cromwell, Cromwell's thing. And then Charles II was re, what's undeposed. He was reinstated. There we go. Anyway. That was then? Around, I don't know anything. I yeah, don't know this anything is, about it. This is then, and and because it was a very, when Cromwell was in charge, it became a very extra puritanical yeah. political yeah. system. It was a, a very dangerous period to be practicing witchcraft. Um, so Wood goes on to say, any sort of pagan worship was classified as witchcraft at that time and punishable by death. If caught, they would have been burned at the stake. To make things worse, swans were royal symbols and property of the crown. So killing a swan was doubly risky. Witch trials were common during the 16th and 17th centuries, and sometimes a few whispers were enough to see someone hanged. During the 1650s, more than 25 people were sent to Launceston Jail in Cornwall after a woman was accused by her neighbors of being a witch. She promptly implicated others in her alleged practice of the dark arts, some of whom were executed. And this is a quote from Jason Simmons, assistant curator at the Horsham Museum in Sussex and an expert on witchcraft in Cornwall during the 17th century. Very specific. And yet, says Marion Gibster of Exeter University, a specialist on 16th and 17th century paganism, witchcraft remained popular. Every village would have had people thought to be skilled in magic in one way or another, you know, like healers or local witchy ladies. And people in the area would go to them for their specialist services, just as we might go to a lawyer or a plumber today. The author goes on to say that Wood leads me to one of the pits and pulls the plastic lid off. I get a sense of the shock she must have felt when she found them. Swan feathers line the pit and muddy, wrinkled egg membranes sit on top. A shiver runs down my spine as I imagine someone coming here in the dead of night, digging a hole and carefully placing these offerings in it. What made them desperate enough to risk death if caught? One explanation is that some of the pits contained offerings to St. Bridget, or Bride, of Ireland, the patron saint of babies and infants who may be associated with the pagan goddess Bridget. Wood says, my theory is that maybe if you got married and didn't become pregnant in the first year, you might make an offering to St. It must be St. Brida or something. It can't be St. Bride, but I, I apologize to any Cornwallians. Uh, but you make an offering to St. Bridget in a feather pit. Further excavation uncovered a stone-lined drain and a second pool that only fills in winter. Wood realized that the pools were much older than their contents and that this site may have been special to people for thousands of years. Based on stratigraphic evidence, she believes the quartz-lined pools are 6,000 years old. The white quartz would have made the pools glow in the moonlight, and we think they may have been very special, a place of ritual for people in those times. If the pools do date back that far, they retained their sacred status throughout the ages, as by the 17th century, people were using them as a place of offering, throwing in personal fragments such as fabric and hair for good fortune. However, the practice stopped in the late 17th century when the crown paid locals to fill in the pools, along with other holy wells in Cornwall, to prevent pagan rituals. Killing the vibe there. Present-day witches, shamans, and druids have taken interest in the site, and they visit to offer their explanations for Wood's discoveries. I'm sure she loves that. Mike Slater, a witch from a pagan community in Bristol, thinks the pits and pools, uh, thinks the pit and pool offerings have an amorous motive. And he said, it has long been known that swans pair for life. Also, nail pairings and hair are commonly used in love spells. Um, and then this, there, there's just one final twist at the end. 
Wood's 2008 field season brought more unusual discoveries. She said, We've been uncovering some extraordinary animal pits. One was lined with the skin of a black cat and contained 22 eggs, all with chicks close to hatching, in addition to cat claws, teeth, and whiskers. Another held a dog skin, dog teeth, and a baked pig jaw. The week prior to my arrival, says the author, Wood's students uncovered a pit that contained a mysterious seven-inch iron disc with a swan skin on one side and animal fur on the other. The biggest shock of all, though, came from the radiocarbon dates for these pits. The cat bit dated to the 18th century, while the dog pit dated to the 1950s. And Wood says, I doubt it just suddenly stopped in the 1950s. It's plausible that it could still be continuing now. I had never heard anything about this, and this is had, has been ongoing since 2001. So wow. I thought that was a neat little yeah. snapshot of some very interesting stuff. And, like, just the fact that there's, like, such continuity, like, in the right. specificity. Yeah. Um, there, I, I mean, is there, like a, like, a spell somewhere that's, like, I need this many eggs and, like... Is, I, I sort of wonder if that translates to a familiar spell that's sort of been lost to time, but that it doesn't uh-huh. seem like it's been lost to time. No, I, well, it's just like not hasn't been like publicly about. available, right? Yes, history. Yeah, <laughs> this is. I know I tell a lot of stories like this that are just like <laughs> really like like weird, uh, like weird stories of like things that have occurred to me, but once in high school. Uh, I went to this, like, I think it was like an overnight retreat or like a weekend retreat or something. And it was during like the big, like smoking cessation campaigns. Oh, like the, okay. and like where they were like getting don't smoke teens indoors, involved. Don't smoke, yeah. No, no, no. Where it's like. Stop smoking. All- oh, stop kids smoking. Like, yeah. Like okay. truth.org or whatever it was. Like yeah, the yeah, one yeah. where like. I remember that. The tobacco companies had to pay for like. Mm-hmm supremely uncool like advertising like against smoking yeah yeah and so it was this thing that they like were like oh here's a chance to get involved and i was like okay i'll do it like i was a huge square um (laughs) and so i went to this i went to this weekend thing down in um down in princeton west virginia like a, a local school um a college and the things I remember from this is that one of the people who was like one of the adults that was there, like the cool adults, he like had a flaming lips t-shirt. And I was like, this guy's all right. <laughs> Even though like in hindsight, he was probably a huge square because <laughs> he was like involved in this like corporate mm-hmm. program. But the other thing was there was this um, this girl that I met that was like in my group or whatever. And she was like kind of alt also. Mm-hmm. And um, – I met her and she was Irish. Like her mom at least was like from Ireland and like they were pagan. And like maybe she was like totally like lying to me, but like I don't know. But she said her but family like, was pagan. That they were they were pagan and like there was like this like matrilineal, like sort of matriarchal like oh, did she, coven. Did her line descend from no, 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 nothing like that. Okay. Just like they were like, like she was like very like close with like her aunties Ow. and stuff. And okay. like, and it was, and like it was, and it was in hindsight, it was like close to like one of the big, it was like close to the, um, 
the autumnal equinox. Mm. So like I met her and I was just like, oh my God, she's a witch. And also she was bisexual. And I was just like, wow, you got a lot going was, on. It like blew my mind. <laughs> I had never met anyone you, who you was like. You be both. <laughs> and I remember like on the way back from this, like I was with my mom and my brother and we went to Wendy's and like we were talking about it. It was like, yeah. And like. And she's bisexual. And I just remember my mom's face being like, is this, is is this, is this where this is going? (laughs) But yeah, I just remember my, my, my first, my first first exposure. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, speaking of uh, exposure to witches. I would like you, if you would, Amber. <laughs> we have a guest. We have a guest. <laughs> and it's uh, that girl. No. <laughs> I tracked her down <laughs> from a story you hadn't told me yet. <laughs> the witch has been me the whole time. Ah! <sighs> so if you would, Amber, this excerpt from a neat article from 2017 that I really enjoyed by Maggie Rosen uh, in a journal that I also think you might enjoy. This is a feminist perspective on the history of women as witches from the journal Dissenting Voices. Mm. And then we can uh, jump up from there before I take you to witchy story number two. This is some some good names coming up. Yes, I I see that. Uh, So I'm reading Maggie Rosen's words now. The treatment of Puritan women and women today is rooted in biblical times. In, in Richard, Europe and the European yeah. world. Just like, boop, was like, like that in there. Like the the Anglo world. Yeah. Um, Richard Godbeer. <laughs> so good. Godbeer. Um, <laughs> Godbeer. Mm. Um, author and professor with a special interest in early American witchcraft, which like, how could he not? With a name like Dick Godbeer. Quote. Eve's legacy as the female prototype was double-edged. On the one hand, she served as a successful helpmeet in the Garden of Eden, and the other, she was Satan's first human ally. Eve was worthy of honor as Adam's companion prior to their fall from grace, but her disobedience to God at the devil's bidding made her the first witch. The story of Eve, the original sinner, was projected onto women living in the Puritan society. Women were, quote, worthy of honor, end quote, for being wives but deemed witches if they disrupted their functionality in society. There was no discrimination based on gender when it came to having supernatural abilities, and there are no records to indicate that more women than men practice witchcraft. The discrepancy lies in the accusations and the convictions of witches. Yeah. So at this point... Since you were mentioning the the Vivitch, yeah. I thought you might want to continue with that as like a not book club but film club recommendation. Uh, well, yeah. So um, specifically to our patrons, I guess. <laughs> though, no, just like everyone, everyone should see it. Um, so the witch spelled. Oh, with- it came out. In tw- no, it's it's just the witch. It just okay. it was the it was the poster that made it look like the Vavitch. Okay, um, I'm still gonna call it the Vavitch. <laughs> the the witch came out in 2015. It's Robert Eggers' first film. Um, he's the guy who did the Lighthouse. Oh, um, yeah. And so they both came so from he like has a vibe. Yeah. So I, this guy, I know he's got like two movies, but like. He is one of my favorite directors uh, because he's like so because he's like a historian yeah. like in his filmmaking. Like he goes to primary sources. So 
the witch, or it's called the witch, a New England folktale, um, is a it's a Puritan family, and there's some like stuff going on, and so what happens is the their daughter is accused of being a witch, and the family sort of like freaks out, and, and so they just sort of yeah like it comes unraveled, um, and so. It takes place in the 1630s, and it's about this family that got sort of kicked out, like banished, that's the word, uh, mm, from mm-hmm. Plymouth. And it all comes from, um, like, all of the dialogue is is sort of, this, at least stylistically, if nothing else, is lifted from um, witchcraft trial uh, transcripts. And, no actual primary source yeah, materials. Yeah, and letters and diaries. And so it, like, takes you a while to, like, understand what's happening, and you definitely should watch it with subtitles. But, like, <laughs> it's got a really strong vibe. And right, so, like, yeah. you get the sense of, you get this the sense of, like, isolation and sort of the claustrophobia of being just a few people in a, like, harsh space. And so yeah, it becomes... Like, v- November, late fall in New England yeah. is... Um, not the a most hospitable. Dark. It's, yes, it's very just, dark. And so it's just like a very like damp, harsh film. <laughs> and um, it's really. What it's a really, it's, it's It's scary. But the thing that is scary about it is the effect of. Yeah. It's the effect of like patriarchy yeah. and like re- like sort of the positive feedback loop of patriarchy and religion and like dogma and i remember like when it came out um stephen king like said like this is the scariest movie i've ever seen and i thought it was extremely funny that like he's like this is the scariest i was like of course you would be scared of like of a film this, that's like, actually the, the problem the has been men all along <laughs> yeah. which like stephen king is very clearly afraid of like women I haven't read much of his oeuvre, but uh, he he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't like, like women. women. Mm. He doesn't like women. Or minivans. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, also, yes. <laughs> also, that comes up. Yep. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's just, it is, people call it a horror film, but I don't think it's a, ho- I think it's like actually scary. Not like most horror movies aren't scary. It, it's They're not like, a film where there's like a lot of jump scares or. Yeah. As somebody who has a pre-existing fear of goats. <laughs> what I thought you were going to say. It's. Goats can be really mean. It, That's a legitimate it, fear. I know. That one that was witnessed to my first breakup was particularly mean. Oh dear. Yeah, I got dumped in a garage and there was a goat next to me who, like, I was crying and it just, like, kept bumping into me going, blur. It was just really. Oh, <laughs> just inopportune goat. <laughs> I know. Watch the witch. Okay. It's so good. And that's the one, like, the, I be the witch of the wood. I be the witch of the, the wood. woods. Yeah. Just the one wood. I be the witch of the wood. Thing yeah, there we go. Only, only walnut. Yeah, and which and like, of no other would. And also, the soundtrack is amazing because it's all like Scandinavian, like folk instruments, and so it's haunting. It just it just sounds like bleak, bleak. <laughs> <laughs> just 
<laughs> it's so I will hard. Say, I, I think a lot of Scandinavian music is very beautiful, but stark and bleak are words that can describe you know that, much of but it. But there's that, it's that, there's an instrument. And I'm going to look yeah. up the instrument. Yep. Because. I do. Like, I know what you're talking about. And it goes. Aah. The nickel harpa. That's yeah, what it is. It's a stringy thing. And it has this keening quality. <sighs> yeah. Shall we keep going? You ready for more story? Yeah. Okay. I just got tired again after getting all excited about the witch. It's okay. Just, okay, I'm gonna lie back, relax. Let's get witchy. How do you make old witchy archaeology even eerier? You go older and you put it in a cave. So let's head back to the Stone Age. A Stone Age site where cave rituals may have been performed some 9,000 years ago has been discovered on Blojungfrun, which translates to Blue Maiden, an island off the coast, uh, an island off the east coast of Sweden. The island has long been associated with tales of witchcraft, curses, and supernatural powers. Okay, so Amber and listeners, can please you say in- the name again? Blojungfrun, something like that. I'm guessing. I, there's I a know. circle over the A, and I'm not quite sure what to do with the vowel. Blau. Maybe blau. I can ask my Swedish coworker. Okay, well. I've been waiting to mine her for her Swedish knowledge. Okay. Well, here's an opportunity. But, <laughs> listeners, I need you and you, Amber, to engage your uh-huh. theater of the mind here oh, because great. what I'm about to describe is sort of very important for the feel of this place and what makes it really interesting and kind of spooky. Am I going to so, hear a nickel harpa? Uh, in your mind, maybe. Yes. <laughs> so this island's huge boulders and steep cliffs provide a dramatic landscape. And for centuries, the uninhabited island has been associated with supernatural powers. According to a centuries-old legend, witches gather every Easter on the island to worship the devil himself. Eh. Curses have also been associated with the island. For instance, those who remove a rock from the site are said to endure a lifetime of bad luck. So, don't do that. People who traveled to the island may have practiced various rituals inside the two caves, archaeologists say. One cave contains what may be an altar where offerings could have been made to deities. Meanwhile, another cave has an area that could have been used like a theater or a stage. So the the team members who come from Kalmar County Museum and Linnaeus University, both of those are in Sweden, they wrote, in two caves, distinct ritual features were identified. One cave, okay, this is where you're going to have to picture some, some physical space. One cave has a massive hollow about 2.3 feet or 0.7 meters in diameter, which was hammered by hand into a vertical wall. A fireplace lies underneath the hollow. Ludwig Pafmoldufey, an archaeologist with Kalmar Country, nope, Kalmar County Museum, said, quote, We believe the hollow is man-made and that the fireplace has been used in connection to hammering out the hollow, probably on several occasions. And the archaeologist... Oh, so like- so you could see so you what could you see. were doing. Right. Okay. Yeah, because it's in the interior of the cave. There's no, as far as I know, it's there's like fully inside in. a cave. It's uh, not yes. like a, okay. It's not in an alcove or like a rock shelter. My impression okay. was that this was in cave. Full on cave. Yeah, which okay. you'll see a little later on. It describes the opening to the cave. And yeah, so. Um, okay. Great. Archaeologists said they are not certain what took place here. However, one clue comes from the cave's layout. So again, from Papmel Dufay which I want to say in a French accent, but who knows. 
Quote, the entrance to the cave is very narrow and you have to squeeze your way in. However, once you're inside, only half the cave is covered and you can actually stand above the cave and look down into it, almost like a theater or a stage below. So maybe it's partially lit from the, like, it sounds like there's not much light coming in because you have to squeeze into the cave entrance. But then once you're in, you'd be totally in the dark, completely. So I don't know if light is coming in from an uncovered portion, but it seems like there's a lower area and a higher area and one on or, one you can. Or you could be working like at nighttime, like, or in the winter, depending on. Yeah. Like, so even if there's an open gal or open sort of skylight from the cave, yeah, you might not be able to see. Um, the quote act of producing the hollow could have been an important part of the ritual or perhaps even the sound created while doing so. The noise from the hammering and the sight of the fire burning as viewed from above may have created an interesting effect for Stone Age audiences, the researcher said. So remember when we talked about Stonehenge and the possibility of sort of trance-inducing drumming noises? Maybe that's at play here. The second cave yielded yet more strange clues. Archaeologists found a hammerstone and an area that was used for grinding up material. This area could have been used to place something in, perhaps as part of some form of offering, like an altar. In between the two caves, the archaeologists discovered a small rock shelter, just 20 by 26 feet or 6 by 8 meters, that contained stone tools and seal remains. Radiocarbon dating indicates that people consumed the seals around 9,000 years ago. So this is an old site. A few people, uh, so this is from uh, Potmel Dufay again. A few people could have been sitting or standing, perhaps just resting or spending the night during sporadic stays on the island. However, more specific activities with ritual elements to them cannot be ruled out, such as feasting in connection to the rituals performed in the nearby caves. So there's really very, very few con- conclusions to this story, just that there's a really strange man-made hollow created in this cave there's some evidence that maybe some ritual activity is involved but it's really difficult to get at ritual activity if you have no access to the population anymore yeah well it's also interesting that um we're talking about how radiocarbon evidence suggests that people were doing stuff there mm-hmm. nine thousand years ago and then uh, the folklore that you talked about at the top of the story right. talked about like like a very of... a very like Christianity informed like witches and the devil sort yeah. of thing like like that kind of like almost like binary like good evil sort of mm-hmm. a thing that would have come thousands of years later and so just the it's, right so it's it always that... so interesting how spaces hold value. Numinous, like, numinous, <laughs> numinous spaces. Uh, that there's like definitely a placiness to the place. Placiness to the place. Yeah, uh, and who knows? You know, maybe this was a particularly good place to catch seals. But then, why bring the seal bones into a cave? Well, maybe you needed shelter. So, like, there are pragmatic explanations for things. But why hammer a hole into a wall? That's yeah. Yeah. So there are some things that are just sort of we may never know. Which is sometimes the spookiest part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So one last spooky story for you. This one isn't exactly witchy, but it is seasonally apt and extremely cool. So I included it. Amber, have you ever heard of a death whistle? 
Yes. Really? Was I supposed to not have? I'm sorry. I can no, say, it's okay. No. Yeah, because I mean, I've been, I've been looking for things to do. Episodes okay, right. Of Spooktober on, <laughs> but um, I have never clicked on one. Okay, well, I've never listened to one, so we can have that. Oh, I don't have any. Together. I don't have any uh, audio clips. Aww. but I know. Well, maybe I actually Dang. didn't. I didn't explore that site too thoroughly, apart from the article that I'm going to read from. But it might have some video or audio. But anyway, click on the link. And you can see some examples of death whistles. Nice. So this is an article by Roberto Velazquez Cabrera, who is a mechanical engineer by profession, but he's made a lifelong study, including physical reconstruction of ancient Mexican resonators. So things that, um, well, things that resonate, but things that (laughs) produce and amplify sound. So wind and other instruments. Um, he is the founder of the Mexico City-based Instituto Virtual de Investigación Tlapitzalquín. Nope. Tlapitzcalzin. Tlapitzcalzin. There we go. And so this is what he has to say. The extraordinary death whistle was exclusively used in several zones of ancient Mexico and belongs to a very unusual family of Mexican resonators that are not well known and which can produce special sounds imitating animal calls and the noise of the wind or storms. It is not a common whistle or musical instrument. It has been associated with death rituals by its decorated face of a skull and with the wind... I mean, because you blow into it. Because two examples were found in the hands of a sacrificed male skeleton in front of the Ejcatl, uh, which is the wind god temple at Tlatelolco. I just listened to one. Oh, yeah? Was it mournful? Deathly? It was really it was really unsettling. It would have helped. It, like It's like a, I'm watching like an unboxing video on YouTube of it. It's oh, weird. That is weird. Weird combo. The internet's weird. Unsettling, but yeah, it's a terrifying though. sound. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll get to, um, we're going to talk a little bit about its actual sound qualities. But it's nice to have, well, I mean, I'm sorry that you are, you were affrighted. But um, it's good to have that confirmation. Good to know. Can uh, 3D print one. Ooh, interesting. Unfortunately, the exact original use and purpose of the death whistle and many other ancient resonators have been lost. There are some ancient death whistles made of clay in museums and collections, but very few of their studies and sounds have been published. This is the first paper in English on the death whistle posted on the internet. Some qualifiers. So the article does go into some of the physics and mechanics of the whistles and and details how they would have worked based on their structure in terms of their acoustics, which is interesting but maybe not so easy to describe for, as a sort of visual thing for an audio format. So uh, listeners, if you are interested, you can uh, go to the link that we will provide and you can see for yourself. The only known ancient death whistles with archaeological context were published by Salvador Guillem Arroyo in 1999. They were recovered from the hands of the skeleton of a sacrificed 20-year-old man that was found buried in front of the wind temple of Tlatelolco. This finding indicates that the whistles are associated with the wind god Ejkatl and the wind and Miklantikutli death and could be related to the ritual of sacrifice. Many other ancient skeletons were found in the same ceremonial complex of the wind god. And Guillem proposed that the ritual of the ceremonial complex could be associated with the famine of 1454. So known um, historical event. 
It seems that the death whistle might have been used in the sacrifices of slaves because chichtli in Nahuatl was an instrument that could produce a ch sound, and it was used in the banquets of Aztec merchants where slaves were killed. According to the Florentine Codex, the, the syllable or the sound chich was the signal to pull out the hair from the middle of the slave's head. Yikes. So I'll end with this little bit from the article about the acoustics because it is as yet unfounded. Um, there would need to be some experimental stuff done, but very cool. So more research remains to be done in the future on the effects of the sounds of the death whistle. For example, we know that when two or more similar ancient whistles or their models are played at the same time, special effects can be produced due to the vibrations generated or phantom sounds. If the beats are infrasonic or too low for the human ear to detect, they may alter states of consciousness. Several death whistles played at the same time can generate very complex vibrations because their noisy signals are produced in a range of frequencies and the effect on humans is significant due to the intensity and range of their main frequencies, but their effects on human health have not yet been formally analyzed. Oh, that is so cool. This yeah. is like, you know that this is one of my favorite things, like infrasonic, like... Yeah, mood-altering like, sounds yeah. and stuff. So um, there are, I don't know... I, I tried to find this and I was just like real bad at entering Google search terms. And I was just like, I get Tasha back. Yeah, I know. Tasha, come back, help me. Um, but I remember reading a long time ago and I, I, I can't remember. The problem is I can't remember what culture this is associated with, but there were, and I'm pretty sure I didn't make this up. There were chambers in maybe Aztec temples or something where prisoners could be kept, but it was constructed purposely so that sound would bounce around in a particular way. And it was like supposed to be extra, extra terrifying because of the way that sounds would happen and be amplified. And, and so I'm just imagining a space that's deliberately built as a chamber for emphasizing sounds and then creating sounds that are meant to mess you up. Like yeah. just imagine those two things in, in concert as it were. This does sound a bit like something that happens at U.S. military detention facilities. Oh, yeah. Also that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Well, it is something that the human brain does not react well to. And so. Yeah. When we. But uh, like at, at its most benign. There was the that study that was done in the that like lab that people thought was like haunted, and it was oh, yeah. an industrial fan that was broken because it was it was making produced. an infrasonic, yeah, and noise. and it was just like filling people with dread and like just, like it'll like heebie-jeebies, and it just yeah. like it like causes like real real issues, real distress for people. Woof. It's really terrifying. It's very scary. Yeah. Like it's one of those things that, that is, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning, like you can't smell it. You can't see it. If there's something that you can't hear because it's out of your range, you can't know it's there. So yeah. it's something that could be yeah. affecting you. It's like, am I, it's, am I living, you know, am, is my brain working the way it should be? Or is something about my environment yeah. deeply wrong? And you don't, you don't know. And you don't know. You can't know because. Because you don't have the sensory input. You don't, you, you yeah. can't get that information cannot hear or see no and that's something that is truly horrifying and that is the unknown and the unknowable ah these are such cool stories yeah oh i'm glad you liked them i hope they were i hope they were sufficiently spooky 
And yeah, that's so wild about the story in Cornwall. I love right? that. She keeps finding stuff. And the, I, well, I just love the like pits lined like with swan sort of, skin. Yeah, yeah, but what? I also just like love the like the continuity of of, oh, of, yeah. of like communities and practice and, and tradition. I mean, there's like the initial arrival of of Christianity, and then mm-hmm. like multiple waves of like persecution that like people actually like um, like persist mm-hmm. and and through to the 1950s and beyond, maybe. Yeah. I sort of oh, want to know, great. I don't know how old, you know, so she said it was in her front yard, basically, but I don't know how old, not the property, but the house, right? So how, like, how long has there been a house there? And what was the land used for before that? They didn't include that information. But just having that there as sort of a shared public place that maybe only a few people know about. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. We itches. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to go watch The Witch and or The Crucible. Oh, that sounds like a packed evening. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you all for listening and for supporting us through your very generous donations. And uh, Mm -hmm. we couldn't do this without you. We sure couldn't. Right. Well, thank you all. Take care. Watch out for The Witch. Watch out for The Witches. (laughs) 